This is Tempest Tossed, Conversations on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikoff. So like nearly all of the United States, Tempest Tossed has been locked down for the last month or so. Here's what we've been doing. We are preparing a third season that will be a comprehensive examination of Trump administration policies on immigration. It'll include the first actions the administration took way back in January 2017, the Muslim ban and the suspension of refugee programs. And we'll look at what's happened at the southwest border, the fight over the construction of the wall and the administration's virtual ending of asylum. We'll have an episode on children with particular focus on child separation and one on DACA once the Supreme Court has issued its opinion. And then we'll discuss a number of other issues as well. The third season will start in June of this year, so stay tuned. Meanwhile, we've begun conversations on a different platform. We call these immigration short takes, mobility in the time of COVID-19. These are live Zoom-based video interviews with experts on the many migration issues that are implicated by the virus and response to the virus. You can find these conversations on the Zolberg Institute website, zolberginstitute.org, and you can subscribe to future short takes there. We do them every Tuesday and Friday at 1 p.m., just for 15 minutes. In this episode of Tempest Toss, we put together two of the short takes. The first features Julia Gelat of the Migration Policy Institute, who talks with us about the role of migrants as workers both in essential occupations and in industries and jobs most hard hit by the response to the pandemic. And the second conversation is with Marisol Orjuela and Munir Ahmad, professors at the Yale Law School, who describe how the COVID-19 crisis has worked its way into the Supreme Court case considering the legality of the DACA program. So we start with Julia Gelat, an interview recorded on April 14th. You've written an interesting piece. It's now published on the MPI Migration Policy Institute website titled Immigration Workers Vital to the U.S. COVID-19 Response Disproportionately Vulnerable. I want to talk about both aspects of that, the vital side and the disproportionately vulnerable. Uh, First, can you describe uh, why immigrant workers are vital to the COVID-19 response? Sure. So we looked at the number of immigrant workers that were working in industries on the front line. So that's, you know, the healthcare industry, of course, and that includes not just doctors and nurses and nursing assistants at hospitals, but also the janitors and other receptionists and other support staff. Also at the front lines we consider is those working at grocery stores and pharmacies who are keeping all of us fed and healthy, as well as those who are working in manufacturing of key things like soap and cleaning solutions and those research scientists who are working to develop, you know, treatments and ultimately a vaccine for the virus. And what we found is that there are about 6 million immigrant workers in these frontline industries, and that immigrant workers are disproportionately represented in in many of the jobs within these industries. So immigrants are 17% of our civilian workforce overall, but they're 29% of physicians. They're disproportionately working as nursing assistants, they're 38% of home health care aides. They're 22% of research scientists. So 
immigrants are a really key part of the workforce in all of these industries that are keeping us healthy, treating COVID-19, um, and just keeping our country running. And also in the food industry, right? That's right. The whole kind of food supply chain um, is reliant in many ways on immigrant workers. Immigrant workers are a huge part of the agricultural workforce. You know, they're also working as drivers, transporting food across the country. They work in the wholesale industries where food is processed. They work in, in meatpacking and you know, in many of the industries that are vital for bringing food to all of our tables. And then why do you say immigrant workers are also disproportionately vulnerable? So we also looked at the industries that have seen really high layoffs in this time where unemployment is skyrocketing in our country. And immigrants are also overrepresented in some of these industries. We found also 6 million immigrant workers in, you know, industries that are hard hit by layoffs. This includes things like restaurants and hotels. It includes retail other than groceries and pharmacies, stores that are mostly closed across the country right now. It also involves in-person services, so the people who cut our hair, people who provide manicures, people who do in-home childcare and in-home cleaning are disproportionately likely to be immigrant workers. And they're, you know, many, just like many other Americans, facing really large numbers of layoffs right now. Um, but within these hard-hit industries, we actually see that immigrant workers have particular vulnerabilities if you compare them to the U.S.-born workforce in those same industries. They're twice as likely to be uninsured. They have higher rates of living in households that have low incomes. Um, under 200% of the federal poverty line. They also are more likely to have children at home and there's high rates of limited English proficiency. So we know that all workers in these industries are facing layoffs and big economic challenges, but immigrant workers come into this situation already with greater vulnerabilities. Do you have some rough numbers on the number of immigrants in these hard-hit industries? Yeah, so overall it's again 6 million who are in the hard-hit industries. Um, just to give some examples, about 38% of head chefs and cooks in restaurants are immigrants. We know that some restaurants are still providing delivery and takeout, but a lot of restaurants have massively scaled back their operations and laid off workers. 63% of those providing in-home cleaning services, for example, are immigrant workers. So, you know, across many of these hard-hit industries, immigrants are a large part of the workforce. And of course, for those who are providing services in other people's homes, many of them have been told not to come to work. And when you add that into the other service industries, these are not people who can, quote unquote, work from home like professionals can or teachers or lawyers and others. Right. So that that's another aspect of the way in which they're so hard hit. Right. Exactly. People who work in restaurants and hotels, they can't do that work from home. People who are providing cleaning services across a range of industries can't work from home. There's a lot of workers who are just seeing layoffs. And layered onto this is the fact that, you know, not all immigrant workers can access the relief that's available for unemployed Americans. So people who have work authorization, whether they're, you know, green card holders, DACA holders, TPS, they can access unemployment insurance. Um, and they would be eligible for those government relief checks in most circumstances. But people who don't have work authorization for unauthorized immigrants, they're not eligible for that unemployment insurance and they're not eligible for those relief checks. And even if they live in mixed status families, even if they're married to U.S. citizens or have U.S. citizen children, that household can't get those relief checks if one person in the house doesn't have work authorization. So big parts of the new safety net that's emerging are not available for these laid off for unauthorized immigrant workers. And your article estimates there are about 4 million U.S. citizen children in these mixed families that are not eligible for aid. Is that right? 
That's right. There are 4 million U.S. born U.S. citizen children living with unauthorized immigrant parents. That's what we estimate. And so, right, they would all be excluded. Parents couldn't even get, you know, the amount just for the children only in the household. The whole household would be excluded from the relief checks. And just staying with the undocumented migrants for a moment, uh, about 7 million undocumented migrant workers, some of whom are essential because they're doing farm work in California. They're not able to get the unemployment benefits or these so-called uh, rebates because um, they don't have a valid social security number. Is that, is that correct? That's right. So if unauthorized immigrants, many pay taxes, but they do so with what's called an individual taxpayer ID number or an ITIN, they're not eligible to get social security numbers. And the requirement for those relief checks is that everybody in the household have a social security number. So if anyone in the household lacks that social security number or pays taxes with an ITIN instead, they wouldn't be eligible. You know, you're describing really a kind of hourglass shape of immigrants uh, overrepresented in the vital industries and now overrepresented at the bottom in the most vulnerable industries. What policy recommendations or conclusions do you think follow from the research you've done here? There's a couple of things. I mean, for all of the workers at the front lines, whether they're foreign born or U.S. born, you know, one of the important things is having the ability to stay home if they're sick. And we've seen the government has extended you know, paid leave for some workers, but it depends on the size of the employer. So that's something that's out there, but not accessible by many immigrant and US born workers. Another piece that particularly affects immigrant households, as we've talked about, is the lack of access to unemployment insurance and to new relief checks. It's hard to see in this political environment, the federal government giving money specifically to unauthorized immigrants, but perhaps to those mixed status families so that US born, US citizen children aren't excluded. We have seen some interesting state and local efforts. So Austin, Texas and Minneapolis, for example, have set up some local funds to try to provide relief to those families that were left out of the federal relief, um, including many unauthorized immigrants in those cities. And it'll be interesting to see if that spreads to other parts of the country and to some of the bigger cities and states that have large numbers of immigrants. And then in terms of access you know, to testing and treatment, we also know that even some legal immigrants are left out of Medicaid, which means that they're left out of you know, subsidized or free treatment of, of COVID-19. Something that advocates are pushing for is for emergency Medicaid to be expanded to include COVID-19 testing and treatment and eventually the vaccine. That would open up um, this treatment to a lot of Americans, including unauthorized immigrants, including recent green card recipients, and even U.S.-born citizens who are in states where they're not eligible for Medicaid. So that's one policy move that could really, you know, help to expand testing and treatment, which is important to keep all of us safe. You know, if, if our immigrant populations are not able to get the treatment that they need or don't feel safe, going to get tested, you know, the disease will spread and it will spread not just in those immigrant communities, but across the country. So this is a case where, you know, these are extraordinary circumstances where you might see some room for policies that are, are more difficult in other times. You know, I wonder also to the extent that we've been operating the federal policy has been based around this kind of America first idea, which has spawned some xenophobic and discriminatory behavior, whether your data can help shed some light by saying, look, immigrants really are crucial both to the response here, and they're also disproportionately hurt, and that a really a nationwide response can't simply focus on the needs uh, of American citizens. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this develops. I think all of us are incredibly aware of how immigrants play a role in our lives now just because we're all thinking about where our food comes from and really 
you know, feeling like we're taking risks to get the food from the grocery store to our tables, but think of all the people along that supply chain that are even more at risk and whose health we really, you know, need to sustain so that all of us can stay fed and stay healthy as well. So, you know, we'll have to see if that does open some political possibilities. Julia, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Our second conversation is with Marisol Orjuela and Lanier Ahmad, professors at Yale Law School, and they're co-directors of the law school's Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic. They've recently filed a letter with the Supreme Court in the case that's considering the legality of the DACA program, that's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Like Julia Jalat, from whom we just heard, Marisol and Munir focus on the vital role that migrant workers, here DACA recipients, have played in the response to COVID-19. Welcome. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having us. Marisol, let me start with you. Uh, Let's start with the case. What's the current status of the litigation? And what's the central claim that's being raised by those challenging Trump's termination of DACA? The question before the court is whether the termination of DACA by the Trump administration in 2017 is arbitrary and capricious and therefore in violation of federal law. The parties briefed uh, in uh, summer of last year and the case was heard for oral argument in November. So the current status is we're waiting for a decision from the Supreme Court and expect that decision by the end of June. Manir, you and Marisol have filed a letter, I guess it's now called the Supplemental Brief, with the court discussing the COVID-19 crisis, uh, claiming it's relevant uh, to the case. Some people may find that surprising. What's the letter say and what's your argument as to why it's relevant in deciding the DACA case? So the letter asked the court to consider the DACA case in light of the current public health crisis around COVID and makes the argument that this is directly relevant to the arguments presented to the court, specifically with regard to um, the agency's consideration or lack of full consideration of the reliance interests in the continuation of the DACA program. So as Marisol said, one of the principal arguments in the case is whether the termination of DACA by the Trump administration was arbitrary and capricious, or if the government uh, had adequately considered relevant factors and explained its reasoning for terminating the program. What we did in the letter is that we highlighted in particular um, two populations. One, uh, healthcare providers who are um, DACA recipients. And uh, that's nearly 27,000 DACA recipients who work in the healthcare sector, uh, nurses, doctors, techs, physical therapists of various kinds. And then second is a population of other essential workers. All the people that we are now relying upon for the continuity of our daily lives, people working in grocery stores and delivery services and transportation and so forth. So essentially what we asked the court to do was to look at the issues that have been previously raised around the reliance interests of a broad range of actors in society, but to see them through the kind of crystalline lens that's been provided by virtue of the current COVID crisis. The issue that we presented to the court is not actually a new issue. What we are arguing is that the current situation, the current pandemic, actually just really illustrates and confirms what had already been presented to the court. Mm -hmm. That is, there was a disconnect between the reality of how embedded DACA recipients are into our society, into our communities, our universities, our businesses, 
and what the Trump administration did in 2017 by terminating a significant program without consideration of these interests. So Marisol, sticking sticking with you on this, so has the Trump administration, has the government denied that uh, people may be relying on DACA recipients for all sorts of services? Is that is that in contention in the case? It's not in contention, but, and this is one of the kind of getting a little bit into the technical aspects of the litigation, but under the Administrative Procedure Act, the court reviews and assesses whether an agency action is arbitrary and capricious based on what's called the administrative record. And so the court is reviewing a set of documents that the Trump administration itself puts forth to the court and says, this is what we relied on. This is what we considered in terminating the program. And when you look at the sparse administrative record in this case, most of what is just simply court decisions about earlier litigation and related litigation, DAPA litigation, and so forth. Very absolutely just conclusory statements about why the Trump administration terminated this program. That's where the argument comes out that the reliance interests are not were not adequately considered and therefore rendering the decision to terminate DACA unlawful. Lanier, back to you. Do you think the argument you make in the letter have an impact beyond the case? Well, I think I, I think it may. And I think in some ways it already has. There has been a lot of media attention to the letter, starting with Adam Liptak, the Supreme Court reporter for The New York Times, writing about it, and in some ways picking up on your earlier question, Alex, speaking to the unusual nature of the letter. And following that, there have been the Boston Globe wrote an editorial, the Washington Post wrote an editorial, there were a group of general counsel from major hospital systems that wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. What that suggests to us is that the letter actually hit upon something that was hiding in plain sight, which is that the COVID crisis, which obviously is affecting everybody, as having a particularly acute effect on different segments of the population. And in a moment where hospitals and healthcare providers are crying out desperately for resources and saying, we need all hands on deck, the argument that taking 27,000 people out of the fight in this moment, I think really has resonated. That matters, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, I think for movement actors like United We Dream and uh, our client Make the Road New York, as well as other membership-based organizations, organized dreamers and and other immigrants, this has provided an opportunity for them to mobilize, especially in a moment where the spaces to mobilize have literally been shut by stay-home orders and so forth. Second, almost regardless of what happens at the Supreme Court, there's going to be a need for advocacy administratively with the agency and legislatively with Congress. So even in the best case scenario, from our perspective of the decision to terminate being set aside. We have never argued that the government can't terminate DACA. We've always argued that the manner in which they've done it is unlawful. So even if the Supreme Court says that the manner in which the administration terminated DACA was unlawful, the administration could turn around and seek to terminate it again. So that means that there's going to be a need for advocacy. And we think that this letter, as it turns out, will provide um, a vehicle for that advocacy. What you're saying here is that if you lose before the Supreme Court, or even if you win and the government readopts the termination in a proper way, this gives you gives gives advocates ammunition to go back to Congress and say you should be legalizing DACA people, not just because they've been here a long time and contributing, but more particularly, they're contributing in a significant way to the COVID response. That's right. I think it gives um, advocates an opportunity in the first instance to go to the administration and says and say don't try to terminate it again. And it gives an opportunity to go to Congress and say, um, the only way to secure 
uh, in a durable sense, the rights of DACA recipients is through legislation and look at the extraordinary contributions in this extraordinary moment. All right, so back to you. I want to raise one other issue here, and that is that ICE has announced it's going to cut back on its enforcement actions in the country to only be removing people who are a serious risk to the community or convicted of a, a criminal offense. Since this would really not apply to many, if any, uh, DACA recipients, is there any real risk to DACA recipients in the current climate, even if you lose before the Supreme Court? Uh, Alex, I would hope that ICE abides by its current uh, directive on enforcement priorities. And if there's a negative decision, an adverse decision to DACA recipients this year, and we are in the middle mm -hmm. of, the, of the pandemic, as we probably will for many months, um, that ICE will not seek to remove uh, DACA recipients. However, I, you know, I don't know that, um, I don't think it's unfair to say that ICE sometimes says one thing and doesn't always behave in a way that comports with public statements by its leadership officials. And so I would, I remain extremely concerned about what may happen to DACA recipients immediately in the aftermath if there were a negative decision from the court. And even taking the statements that ICE has made recently in light of COVID, they've also stated that they're going to look into alternatives to detention, but the detention statistics remain extremely high. Over 35,000 people remain detained in ICE custody, and ICE is facing litigation around the country for failing to employ any significant reduction plans in order to create safer spaces for its detained population. So I'm just not sure that I would place much on the statements that ICE has made at this juncture. Munir, one final question back to you. So I just, this goes beyond the case, but it occurs to me that the justification that the government used to erect a virtual wall at the border saying anyone who shows up now at the border without papers will be immediately turned around with no proceedings at all. They, they relied on a public health justification saying that to, to keep people uh, in border patrol stations and the like risked disease for the border patrol agents and also if they were released in the country. I wonder if that then cuts back on the justification for any ICE activities inside the United States, which would require the picking up of someone, the holding them, and the return of people, DACA recipients or anyone else. So do the arguments at the border really undercut ICE undertaking any sort of enforcement activities inside the United States? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And in some ways, the argument that ICE is making at the border, it, it proves too much. And so if that's the position that they're going to take, that somehow now their public health concerns about Customs and Border Protection and, and ICE officers trump the treaty rights and the statutory rights of asylum seekers, if that argument is so strong that it can overcome those individual rights, then presumably it would operate in the way that you're suggesting as, as well in terms of detention and interior enforcement. I mean, you know, we know from just prior to the, the start of the COVID crisis that with regard to DACA recipients, the administration was stating, um, the leadership was stating in Congress and uh, in other public statements that they are getting ready. They're doing everything that's necessary for DACA recipients who have prior orders of removal so that if the Supreme Court strikes DACA, they are ready to remove them and they will remove them is what they've said. I think it goes to Maricel's point that, you know, they might be hitting a, a pause button of a kind right now but they've shown every intention to speed back up as soon as they can. And, and you know, the, your point as well, Alex, suggests that, that they're being somewhat disingenuous about their use of the public health rationale. That gives us pause because I don't know that it's going to be 
entirely clear when the public health emergency is over. And ICE might determine it's over for the purposes of interior enforcement far before public health experts determine it's over. And so that's an area of concern as well. Well, it's really interesting. It means that uh, both the both the government and now the litigants are using uh, or discussing the COVID crisis in a way, citing it to defend the, uh, both policies that they're trying to pursue. And it just goes to the point that it seems that COVID has changed uh, everything. Thanks so much, both of you, for being with us on Short Takes. Thanks, Benir. Thanks, Marisol. You've been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Our engineer is Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112, and theme music composed by Eli Elenikov. We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes, and you can reach us by emailing us at tossedtempest at gmail.com. That's tossedtempest.com all one word at gmail.com.